Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Deep in History. Welcome back uh, to our long series of long discussions. Right, Monsignor? All right, Marcus, it's good to see you, and um, the, the Lord's coming is near. That's right. We're, in fact, our, we're, we're recording this discussion on the Feast of the Annunciation. So uh, when you think about that in in light of what we're going to discuss, Monsignor, we're titling this um, uh, episode The Flesh and Blood of Jesus. Well, what's the Annunciation about? Uh, but the very coming of the divine Son of God into humanity, uh, taking upon himself flesh and blood. And he really took upon himself flesh and blood. Um, it was not just he was, it was not that he just kind of slid through mary and and he's basically a creature from some other entity um but he's truly he was truly man uh, i have to admit that one of the reasons that reading the early church fathers um becoming awakened to the writings of saint irenaeus uh, <clears throat> was to discover that many of the things that that we today as Christians in the 21st century take so flippantly for granted that the early church had to fight tooth and nail about. Now, to a certain extent, uh, and again, this is my personal view, uh, they had been warned not to get caught up in those battles our Lord Jesus and St. Paul and, and Irenaeus all said, guys, please don't get caught up in battles over words. And there was warnings. About, Irenaeus was saying, don't get caught up trying to, dis, to, to define things that are beyond our human ability, beyond what God told us. So that was the warning, and that was the wish, and that was the grace, but almost as if their warning, our Lord's warning to not go there was a message to the devil. That's where we'll attack. Because that's one of the main ways the devil tried in every which way to destroy the church. Beginning before Irenaeus, but escalating during the time of Irenaeus, and particularly in the, sec, in the, excuse me, the third, the fourth, and the fifth centuries, uh, in many ways, dividing bishops against one another all over Christendom, over the battle over words. And here we are these years later, most of what they fought about, fought over, we just take for granted. Uh, but it was very difficult during those years, wasn't it, Monsignor? Oh, it was. And um, uh, it tore the church up. The Arian controversy tore the church apart. And, and really now, uh, as we enter in the fifth century too, the debate over the uh, two natures of Christ will create lasting schisms in the church. So yeah, this is really foundational and difficult stuff. 
how we understand. We're we're entering into against heresies this week. We're <clears throat> we're going to cover book five, chapters fourteen through eighteen one, is what we're proposing, mm-hmm. and that's in on, in Keeble. It's pages four eighty one through four ninety two, and we're jumping right into the middle of a long argument. Um, and I have to admit that I'm having difficult time kind of wading through this section, Monsignor. It, uh, part of it is because there are things he is saying very boldly that I just take so much for granted that do I appreciate what he's saying? And then there are other things that I'm just not, it's like we're on different universes. Um, and I'm not sure this is true for you, Monsignor, but uh, I, I'm finding a little bit of that myself in this. Well, I mean, you know, I imagine what what against heresies the book would have needed would be a a good modern editor to kind of keep it reduce the size of it a little bit because Irenaeus does repeat himself, um, um, and really I think the more I've been reading about this book now or the work, these five books um, they seem like they don't they seem like they've been written at different times for him. So it's not like a consistently argued thing that he's doing here. Um, he, he probably put his pen down and came back to it again. And, and had different um, pastoral issues that were on his mind. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I also yeah. think some of these were homilies that he was preaching and pulling and together. Very likely, yeah. Uh-huh. I remember I had a great privilege back, oh, now it's got to be more than 20 years ago. I was in Lithuania, of all places, and I had been invited to go to a church and talk about, talk about my faith and then my journey into the Catholic Church. So I'm speaking in English to this room full of Lithuanians, and there was a translator. And I would, you know, I would go through a paragraph, and then I'd pause, and he, or a sentence, and he would pause. And we got to a nice uh, rhythm, but it cracked me up. There were two times that really cracked me up. One time I had said a sentence that might have included 10 words, and his translation took about 10 minutes. I mean, I'm <laughs> exaggerating a little bit, but I'm sitting there wondering, what is he telling these people? You know, I just said a short thing, and he just kept going on and on. I said, okay. Then later I said once where a sentence, I had a long sentence, I thought it was too much, and I'm waiting for him to translate it. And he did the whole thing in about five words. <laughs> and I'm, you know, and and that, again, that kind of reminds me of Irenaeus. We almost need that translator sometimes to take all that he says, and maybe on the one hand summarize it into one short statement for us, whereas other times he said, "Now wait, we got to back up here. You need to know a whole lot more." to the background to understand the simple thing that he is saying there. Um, he knew Scripture better than most of us. Yeah. So when he talks about the wood of Elijah, how many of us immediately remember the story? Or It's been, yeah, Sunday school. <laughs> yeah, you see, so he's basing it on the assumption that we know that story. He kind of summarizes it, but there's an example where... Irenaeus amazes us. But before we jumped into it, so we're going to look at quickly at this, but I, what I wanted to do, Monsignor, and I, in some ways I want to, well, I've got two things we want to do before we jump into it. Number one, 
is that we had a comment from one of you a couple weeks ago. Actually, it was our March 2nd program. Um, and we had a comment from someone who made an interesting comment about Irenaeus as a missionary to those in Gaul. Monsignor, could you read that email and maybe make a thought about it? Sure. It, it comes from Ted, and um, I'm very, very grateful to him because he makes a really good point here. Um, um, and he speaks about how Irenaeus was sent to Lyon as a missionary to serve a Greek-speaking community. Um, um, and, uh, and I think that is a very well-grounded point he's making, that probably a lot of the people that were living in southern Gaul um, that they were, that they were, they were Greek-speaking people. Maybe they moved there for employment or for something else. But um, and they, and, and so it would be natural for the, them to look back to Asia Minor, um, where many of them probably came from, um, to find someone that would come and be their missionary priest and bishop for them. So I thought that was a really good point. Um, uh, he made the point, Ted makes a point here, he was quoting um, uh, Father David Anderson that um, that uh, Lyon was considered the end of the trade route coming from the Eastern Empire. It was very cosmopolitan, had, and it had many Greek-speaking merchant traders. Um, so they may have requested a Greek-speaking presbyter from Asia Minor. Um, I think that's a very yep. reasonable and indeed likely um, Thing. That that reminds me of something earlier in, if you remember earlier in maybe book two or three, I think it was book three, Irenaeus talks about the, the, the simpler barbarians uh -huh. who were holding to the common tradition. Remember that? Yeah. Um, that's interesting in this context. So in other words, he is there to expound the faith to the Greek speakers, which is natural for him, and so we can expound the tradition. But in the context, are non-Greek speaking barbarians, it's more difficult to translate to them, but they've got the common tradition that they received and they're holding tight to it. Yeah. So there's that two group of people in Gaul that he's referring to. Those that can get the full, you know, the full basket of then those that just got the basics, but they're holding tight to that. The, yeah, probably from Wales. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, those Gauls, the Gaul, you know. Uh, anyway, so, um, and then the second thing that I wanted to point out with is that we're dealing here with the flesh and blood of Christ. What we dealt with last week in the long flowing of his argument. Again, he's he's arguing with Gnostics who have a problem with the flesh and the spirit and putting those two together. And of course, that will lead to this, the common battle over time in that how do we put an invisible, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God into a human body? How do you do that? And the scriptures don't say how it's done. So the church wrestled with that as people were struggling to come up with their explanations. The Gnostics were having theirs, and that's what last week we were dealing with the idea 
And this all has to do with an interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15.50, where Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So how do you understand that? How do you understand what Paul said in relationship to to the resurrection of humanity? And that's Mm -hmm. what we kind of dealt with last week. This week, the, the focus seems to be, Monsignor, that he's, he's focusing on the flesh and blood of Jesus. If flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, how do we understand that? Then what about the incarnation of Christ? Why did he become incarnate? You know, and, and, and he will deal with that in a number of statements. And some of you who are lifelong Christians who might be listening to some of the things we're going to say here, you might say, well, duh, I believe that. What's the big deal? We've always believed that. Well, as we mentioned earlier, um, we've taken things for granted that that have been solidified many centuries ago. And when we jump into Irenaeus, we're jumping into that battle. Before we get into this, Monsignor, I couldn't help but see that in the readings that were in the Liturgy of the Hours for the last couple of days as we're in this time of Lent and we're approaching Easter, that, that some of the readings the Church has chosen for us um, are from this time period, if you will, the, 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 the years a little bit after, addressing the very same issues. And I thought it might be good, Monsignor, maybe to talk about, we have, we have a reading that was yesterday, St. Augustine's reading, and if those of you want to look at it, it's in volume two of the Liturgy of the Hours, the Lenten season, and yesterday's reading is on page 366. It's the, the Wednesday Office of Readings, and it was from I love the Office of Readings. That's my favorite part of the Liturgy of the oh, Hours. I agree. I, I love them. The second, the best collection of, of selections from the early church fathers. But um, yesterday's reading was by St. Augustine, and it was his commentary on Psalm 85. And here are some of the con. I'm going to read a couple statements here, Monsignor, and then I'd like your reflections on, on the document itself as well as what he's dealing at. But God, he says, God could give no greater gift to men than to make his word, through whom he created all things, their head, and to join them to him as his members, so that the word might be both son of God and son of man, one God with the Father and one man with all men. The result is that when we speak with God in prayer, we do not separate the son from him, And when the body of the Son prays, it does not separate its head from itself. It is the one Savior of his body, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who prays for us and in us and is himself the object of our prayers. So he goes on about that. I'm going to jump ahead to just one more quote before I turn it to, if you turn over to page 368, he says, We pray to him as God. He prays for us as a servant. In the first case, he is the creator. In the second, a creature. Now, that statement itself, which is what, uh, a couple hundred years after Irenaeus, 
I mean, to some of those early Christians struggling with these issues, it would have just been like turning the knife in them, you know, that in, in Jesus we have the creator and the creature. How do we have in Jesus the creator of the universe and yet a creature? Marcus, um, yeah, I was. I wish I had my a whiteboard, you know, but <laughs> start writing on this, because I, I have always been deeply moved by um, a model that Saint Augustine developed in his work on the Trinity, and it's basically, you know, we have we have God, and we have man, and there's this infinite gulf between them. And so the father sends his son to become incarnate. And the son, of course, the incarnate son has two natures, his divine nature, which is um, one with the father and the human nature, which is one with us. So um, we are we have communion with Christ through that human nature that we share. Christ has communion with the Father through his divine nature. And so St. Augustine said, we go through, we go to Christ, through Christ, to God, if you will. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's, 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 to see it charted out is, a, is helpful, I think. Um, but it, that's basically our understanding of the incarnation. And now... Was Leo? Oh and, oh, and I forgot, Marcus, to um, just because there might be some really keen-minded souls out there. Um, Augustine wrote this about 150 years after Irenaeus, not 200. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to. I was trying to picture him in relationship to Leo, who's coming next. So, right. Leo is a little closer to 200. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and we so we have any different voices. The things that you read in in Irenaeus and. Irenaeus is doing the best job he can, but we don't look back on him as perfect in everything that he says in his arguments no, by no. any means, but he's doing the best job he can to try and answer these crazy interpretations that these Nazis have had to try and answer the very things Augustine just talked about. God infinite and man fleshly, and how do you put them together? And, and Irenaeus was one of those that took it a different way It caused if you will, problems in the church to this very day. Right, Monsignor? Yeah. Because there, there are still people divided today because of what Irenaeus said. And there are people today coming back with Irenaeus's view. They don't realize that they're just repeating Irenaeus's uh, misunderstanding about the... Uh, Marcus, I, I'm sorry. I, I, forgive me. I lost your argument there. Could you repeat it? Pardon? About... What did Irenaeus say that was so new and difficult? Oh, no, no. I, I meant Ar uh, Ar Arius. Arius, okay. Arius. I, they sound Arius. so similar. They okay. sound so similar. I yeah. meant Arius is what I was trying yeah. to say. That Arius is trying to, he's trying to, you know, the Gnostics have their crazy views. Well, a little later, we're going to have a priest named Arius yeah. is going to have his own slant on this, which is going to cause division to this very day. It's, how do you and take course, the flesh? Thought, you know, Arius thought he was traditional. That, I mean, that is one of the amazing things I think we've 
discovered as we've studied Arius in the last uh, century or so is um, that he was self-consciously trying to, he thought he was not inventing something new about Christ, but he was trying to basically reflect what the tradition was, and he misinterpreted it. Yeah, yeah. How do you put the infinite God into a finite body? How do you put an invisible God into a visible body? Well, so Augustine was 150 years later, and then maybe another 100 years later, we have Pope Leo. Um, no, about um, 25, maybe? Okay. 20 to 25. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah. So yeah. maybe, what, 200, 250 years past Irenaeus? Well, think of Irenaeus at 175, and Leo is flourishing about the year 450. Okay. So. Excellent. Um, but he, in uh, today on the Feast of the Annunciation, the Church has chosen as the second reading uh, on page 1745 of the Liturgy of the Hours, the letter from St. Leo the Great, and the letter, there's so much in there that's worth quoting, but maybe before I, I read a couple quotes, Monsignor, why don't you tell them the significance of this letter that we're quoting from? Okay, yeah, this is this is probably the most important papal document that has ever been written, period. The most influential, easily. Um, we call it, sometimes we call it the Tome of Leo, it's identified um, in the Liturgy of the Hours as it was from his letter 28, um, which he wrote to Flavian, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the year 449. And what um, what he's dealing with here is uh, just maybe two sentences go to go back to put it in context. Um, the Third Ecumenical Council in 431, that was dealing with the Nestorians and their argument that um, their argument that Mary was not properly speaking the mother of God, she was the mother of Christ, but she couldn't be the mother of God. Um, and so basically there we have the problem that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is is um, we we keep the two natures too separated in that in Nestorius's reckoning, but now we've come along with another guy named Eutyches uh, in Constantinople who was going on and on about how um, he was overemphasizing the the divine nature and um, him, and kind of suggesting that that um, the divine nature kind of took the place of the human soul, so that there was something incomplete about the humanity born of the Virgin Mary. And, and Pope Leo got involved in this and he wrote this letter to Flavian, which was then translated into Greek. And it became one of the primary texts at the, um, at, at the Council of uh, Chalcedon in 451. And that's the one where um, they said about Pope Leo after they read his letter and approved it, and and the bishops at Chalcedon said, um, Peter has spoken through Leo, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. which is 
kind of a, a, a marvelous moment in terms of the Catholicity of, of the church and the primacy of Peter. Reminds me a bit, again, those of you who've been following along with this, a week or two ago, Irenaeus talks about uh, the parts of a human person that together make up the whole man. Yeah, and in you know, and so basically, <clears throat> excuse me. Basically, Irenaeus has what we call a bipartite understanding of the human person: a soul and a body. Um, and the soul is either the soul is directed toward the spirit of God. And if it is, it makes the image of God and man more vivid and real, or it turns to the flesh and and it becomes earthy or fleshy, if you will, that sort of thing. But the problem that Leo's dealing with is that this idea that the soul in Jesus wasn't a human soul. That's right. Yeah. That's what um, what this monk Eutyches had, had suggested, that um, what... The, the animating presence in the person of Jesus Christ was um, was liter was literally or you know primarily or absolutely his his yeah. divine yeah. His, his divine will or if you will you know so then there's the question of a human will or a human soul in Christ and and Leo makes the point you know you got to have Jesus. Christ has to have both a divine, a fully formed divine and fully formed human nature in order for this communion to work between us and and God. Otherwise, the connection isn't made. He makes some statements then that you can read in, um, read the whole thing, but I won't do it now. But thus, he says, thus in keeping with the healing that we needed, one and the same mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ was able to die in one nature and unable to die in the other. So he's making that unique distinction there. I like Leo because he doesn't step too far. He doesn't describe how. It's beyond us. But he describes what's real, what's true. Um, There's so much there. Um, Yeah, and just... Marcus, could I just, yes. the most famous part of, of this tome Please. is that first sentence in the last paragraph in the liturgy of the hours. Okay. One one and the same person, this must be said over and over again, is truly the son of God and truly the son of man. That's probably his most famous saying. All right. In fact, maybe because of time, we'll just leave it at that. I encourage all of you to read that. Um you know, he was born in a new condition, for invisible in his own nature, he became visible in ours. He hid his infinite glory and took the nature of a serpent. So there, so if you will, those of us that say, uh, duh, that's what we believe, it, we put ourselves back reading Scripture and realize there's mysteries there that really are beyond us. He's 100% God, 100% man, to use mathematical. How is that? And, and you know, and jumping back now to Irenaeus, um, he was, I mean, Irenaeus was dealing with the Gnostics who said Jesus wasn't really a human being. He was from, 
was from another planet, if you will. <laughs> I think I'm right in saying, Monsignor, that the very issues that Irenaeus is dealing with in the Gnostics, to a certain extent, their answer was cleared up by the time we get to Augustine and Leo. Because their answer was, well, there must be multiple gods, multiple emanations. It isn't the same God that created us, that created Jesus. It isn't the same. Right. And that wasn't the issue that's going to be dealt with later in the consuls. That isn't the issue. Then the issue becomes, okay, if there's only one creator and there's one father and there's one son and there's one Holy Spirit, how do they fit together? And if Jesus is divine and man, how do they fit together? And people were at each other's throats trying to decide. Bishops were at each other's throats because they had different opinions on that. It seems to me that the one underlying issue all through what we're going to cover today is in different ways, Irenaeus saying it's the same creator and father. It, I mean, that's the underlying argument. Yeah. It's one and the same creator and father that has done all this. And he's building this argument, I believe, with the underlying goal of trying to convert them Gnostics. Bring That's them what home he's doing. Them. That's yeah. what he's, he's trying to yeah. do. And so, Monsignor, what we'll do is we're going to go through this as quickly as we can, assuming that our audience uh, themselves takes the time to read these. We can't obviously cover everything, but... Uh, you know, I put together this outline, Monsignor, and as I go through it, I want you to to jump in uh, because you're really the authority here. I'm just no. I'm just the old football player trying to keep from looking like a football. So, uh, uh, but the the end of last section on page the bottom of 480. At 5.13.5, there's a summary quote that I think is good to summarize last week's to bring us into where we're at, in which Irenaeus says, Wherefore, in all this, as we had said before, they will either affirm the apostle to be of two contrary minds in respect of that saying flesh and blood, not having power to possess the kingdom of God, or again, will be constrained to make malicious and forced explanations of all that is said, inverting and changing the meaning of it all. I liked that statement, Monsignor, because he's he's saying, listen, you know, they're, they're trying to come up with their solutions of this, and they're either saying it's Paul's fault. Yeah. Or um, they're coming up with all kinds of crazy things. Yeah. Well, that's beautifully summed up there. Yeah. <laughs> so and that's his method. That's his methodology is to show that um, it, the Gnostic arguments just make no sense. Period. And if we remember earlier on, he was saying that these Gnostics can't agree with one another, that none of their views are with another, and everyone wants to be better than his teacher. Yeah. So he's been showing that there's these arguments all over, and. Uh, He's trying to bring it down to a close. In uh, then, so we enter into chapter 14, where now we're before he was referring to the flesh and blood not inheriting the kingdom in terms of our flesh and blood. Now he's so, showing that this very same blood, flesh and blood, he's referring to it that our Lord Jesus shows. 
And the Apostle Paul uses flesh and blood to refer to Jesus to show two things, he says. He uses it to show our Lord's incarnation, his own human nature. And second, to argue for our own salvation of our own flesh. Uh, Yeah. And he's anxious to uh, make the—he wants to make the point here, I think, that um, the only reason why he came down and took on human flesh um, was for the purpose of redeeming humankind. And um, there was no other reason why the Lord should be floating about the universe in different forms than to to save that creation that had been lost. Yeah, if the body can't be saved, then why did Christ take on a body? Exactly. That's precisely what he's arguing here. Yeah. So yeah. again, here we are later. Yeah. Now we are. We don't. We just take it for granted. But he's trying to argue that with people that don't quite get it. From the beginning, he points out all the way in the Old Testament. He gives many Old Testament quotes that that justice was necessary for the shedding of blood. But only in the flesh and blood can it be saved. And so he connects the incarnation and in, in the death and resurrection and sacrifice of our Lord with the fulfillment of all those Old Testament requirements. And once again, he is a biblical scholar in the way he um, summarizes all that. And there's a good quote on that on the bottom of page 481, if you want, those of you who are reading along. And then the next two sections on page 482, sections 2 and 3, he continues with the argument that Jesus had the same flesh and blood as Adam, and it was the same made of clay. Now, Monsignor, why why was it important for him to make that distinction in the context of his argument? That it was the same? Yeah. Uh, Again, I think it was um, if... You know, the Gnostics thought that Christ was something other than human nature, and he was sent to help us escape from it. Um, And so that's why he's trying to really emphasize the point that it was for that reason that he came, and he truly did embrace the, the very nature, the very substance of what a human being is. Except, of course, without sin. Yeah, there, and maybe I'm reading into what's behind there, but behind his argument, but almost throughout the entire history of humanity, I'm pretty sure humans have kind of assumed a class system. That there are different people, layers in society. You know, the elite later will get into, you know, the the idea of the blood, blood of royalty. And just because a person's born into a certain blood, they're at a higher level than the rest of humanity. And maybe they're in here is this, okay, maybe Jesus had flesh, but he certainly was at the kind of flesh we've got. Our flesh was made from the clay. Well, Jesus must have been of a higher level or something. 
Yeah, Marcus, I I don't want to get you in or me in trouble. No, I do want to get me in. I want <laughs> I want to get in trouble. I think people should try, be attentive to the way there's a certain theological argument going on now that Jesus Christ um, fashions a new humanity that can be transgender, it can, you know, that whole argument about human sexuality is essentially structured like the Gnostics were arguing. That, that, um, that what came before, that old male and female distinction is too simplistic or bad or something like that. And now um, Jesus has come and opened up a whole different a fuller understanding of what the human person is. And I just, when I listen to some of these arguments in theology today, um, it's just haunting, it's harrowing to, to see we're, we haven't gotten that far. Oh man, and you know, yeah. uh, different Christian, quote Christian traditions. I don't know much about um, Mary Baker Eddy's uh, views. I've not read much of her views, but Christian science really ha has a, a questionable view about the physicality of things. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, and if if you move that in, a, what we are physically is not what really matters. It's what's going on inside. Yeah. Then from there you can get to an argument that I really think I'm a woman. It doesn't matter what my physical body says or anything. Is that I'm 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 a woman trapped in a male body. Well, I've heard, we've been hearing that for a long time, but but that those crazy ideas go all the way back. And and what he's saying in this, yeah. he is saying that that body that Jesus got, it was created just out of clay like ours was. He became exactly. just what we are. Exactly, because <laughs> you know you know, Valentinus was saying. Get me out of this place. <laughs> Get me yeah. out of this body. I want to go. I want to go to the spirit world. And sometimes we'll hear, hear people say that, but we've got to be careful that we make sure we hear it in the full context. I mean, Saint Paul yeah. says, "I don't know if I want to, you know, rescue me from this, you know, and you know, I don't know if I want to live or die. You know, I'd rather die and be with Jesus, you know, that whatever God. Well." We put it in the context of the situation in which he is. He's in chains and jail, and he's you know in the context of things. But we got to make sure it's in the fullness of the truth. And um, in in section four, he goes on with this idea that it's not the flesh and the blood and the blood literally that can't inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, because of all that he's been arguing, but it's the cardinal carnal doings of the flesh and blood and sin that can enter into the kingdom. And that's a distinction. That's why I gave that list of the carnal fleshly yeah. things. Those are the things that keep us from entering into the kingdom. It's not the flesh itself, but it's what we do with our bodies that can prevent us from entering into the kingdom. And he says, therefore, it's with this flesh and body in which we sin, that we are to be righteous and produce righteous fruit. Uh, so again, his call for holiness. Uh, 
recognizing that what we do in this body is going to either uh, allow us into eternity or prevent us from spending eternity with God. Marcus, you know, do you see on the, on page 483 that little note on the side at the bottom about Tertullian? Yes. On the, on the resurrection of the flesh? That, that was a little note that... Um, um, that that Keeble put in here, and I, w- I looked that one up. I was kind of intrigued in that. And Tertullian wrote um, that what he's quoting with Tertullian's argument that if the Gnostics insist on reinterpreting flesh and blood to mean something other than what God created it to be, why don't they go on to mention the soul as well? In other words, their whole account of what the human person is. Um, is up for grabs. Yep. Uh, um. yep. Okay. Um, one other thing I wanted to point out there, the right below that, if uh-huh. you notice, he says in the third line from the bottom, using moreover these proofs which are of the scriptures. I just wanted to bring that out and remind ourselves that almost all the arguments Irenaeus is making in his battles are from scripture. He's basing his arguments on scripture, which is why he's such a profound, uh, yeah, profound scripture scholar. It's amazing what he does. But he's recognizing that in this battle with these people, making an argument, maybe from because Polycarp. Now he does remember. There's a couple times he'll say the elder said this. He's maybe referring to Papias or maybe to Polycarp. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's another time when he. He says the um, the elders, the pupils of the apostles believed this, but I don't think in any of those cases he's building his argument just on what he said. He's more saying they're, what they're doing is building their arguments on Scripture. Papius Polycarp and that in the in the elders are building their argument on the scriptures, which he argues early are the written form of the apostolic deposit of faith, along with. The Old Testament. Is that right, Monsignor? Yeah. Might yeah. summarize yeah. it correctly? Good point. Yeah. Okay. So, chapter 15. Now he shifts. It's still the same trajectory, but he's really now focusing on the resurrection in chapter 15. In section 1, page 484, he says, He who created man also promised through the prophets a second birth, and a resurrection. And again, the underlying point is, it's the same God. It's the same one. It's not some other. And then, that, and then he goes on at length on, you know, um, Ezekiel chapter 37. So I think that's got to be one of the most, um, I, I think, I, of all the fathers of the church, I don't think anyone ever jumped into it quite like he did here. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so we, basically, that's the whole. That's that whole section from Ezekiel thirty-seven. He quotes. You know, we we modern Christians focus almost entirely on the New Testament, and then we we dip into the Old Testament once in a while. We forget that in, in the early church, the Old Testament. Was That's the, where they began with. Yeah, everything was there, and they yeah. took it very seriously, very literally, very important. Um, he 
he makes the statement in section two, after he goes through that whole foundation, as you said, from Isaiah and then Ezekiel, um, he says, since, well, at the end of section one, since therefore the framer here also quickeneth our dead bodies, as we may see, and promises them resurrection and awakening out of the sepulchres and graves and gives them incorruption. It is shown that he is the only God who maketh these things. And the same is the good father, graciously bestowing life on those who of themselves may not have life. And for this cause, the Lord most openly shewed, that's, uh, showed, yeah. I mean, that's that Elizabeth shewed himself and the father too, to his disciples. You, you know, so in our Lord appearing to his disciples is his way. Remember, remember when Philip says, show us the father. And what does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Mm-hmm. And so what Irenaeus is saying, that is the, that is the demonstration of the oneness of the creator that gave us life, that created us out of the clay and also gives us second birth. Okay, I didn't know if you wanted to add to that, good um, Monsignor. You know, but. I think in, in section two, you know, he um, he deals with the parable um, of the healing of the of the blind man, and very at bottom of page uh, four eighty five. Um, Wherefore the Lord also spat on the earth and made clay and smeared it over his eyes, exhibiting the old formation how it took place and displaying to those who may understand the hand of God, whereby man was formed out of the clay. That is a marvelous um, interpretation of that, of the parable there. Yeah. I remember when I, when I was a kid hearing that parable, I thought, Ooh, that's icky, you know, (laughs) spit on your, somebody spit in your eyes like that. Um, so I was I focused on the spit, and the point is, it's it's the clay. It's the clay, and it and this you know it's Jesus demonstrating that he is restoring by this miracle, he is restoring um, what was originally intended to be um, human nature, you know, yep. perfectly ordered human nature. So, all right, all right. Section three, again, he emphasizes this issue of it's the same God. And he says, again, based on that parable, that story that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. he argues that it's the, the same God who formed us um, in the womb, who formed sight, who formed the whole man is he who through the lava of regeneration gives new birth. And I'm presuming that when he talks about the laver laver of regeneration, he's referring to baptism. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, And Gary, he's, he's referring back to that story in Siloam where Jesus tells him to go to Siloam and wash. And he's making the connections with that and baptism. Again, the underlying emphasis is it's the same God. And then in, in fact, he makes it go to Solomon Wash, giving him 
back together both his first form and the new birth, which is by the font, which is another way of Irenaeus connecting it with baptism. Yeah, with baptism, right. And then at the end of section four, there's a good quote. Um, and that God has sought sinners out in the evening, and he calls that, that, that analogy to the last times. Let me read that quote, Monsignor, then I'll, I'll pass it to you. Therefore also the scripture is signifying what was to come, saith that when Adam was hidden because of disobedience, the Lord came to him in the evening, and calling him out, and saith unto him, Where art thou? That is to say, that in the last times, the very same word of God came to call man unto him, reminding him of his works, wherein while he lived he had been hidden from the Lord. For as then to Adam God spake in the evening time, seeking him out, so in the last times by the same voice he came to see and to search out Adam's race. That's something. The evening, the last times, the end times. Yeah. Um, that's what certainly we're going to discover as we go forward now in book five. Um, he's got, Ernest has an expectation that the Lord is indeed coming again soon. Um, there's an urgency in the way he writes there. And that metaphor about, you know, seeking out Adam in the evening and calling us in the evening is, is a, is powerful in the evening of our lives and the evening yeah. of humanity. You know, yeah. uh, again, it reminds me of, of Romans three, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he came to us in the evening and he's still beckoning. That's his point as he's to get to the end times thing, but he's still beckoning and the time is short folks. The, the time is short. You Gnostics out there, you know, cut with all your crazy stuff and, and, and come to the fullness and, well, maybe I should say, where, where does he say they need to come if they want to have the fullness, Monsignor? To the church. To the church. Church. And, you know, I, Marcus, I just I think it's also good to point out here in this section, because um, it's not, we don't think quite this way sometimes, but the same person that called out to Adam in the evening is the same person that calls out to us. It is Christ. It is the word of God that's doing the calling here. And um, and I think that just drives home the point again about how um, Jesus, unif I mean, Jesus is what salvation history is all about. And the word had this vocation right from the beginning. And it points out, as Aranez is saying, that all these speculations that the Gnostics were doing, trying to answer problems, was actually undercutting everything, was leading to so many other problems, one of which mm -hmm. is undercutting the idea that you just said, that the very same guy that, that loved Adam yeah. loves us. And what they were saying, they're undercutting that all over the place. And... and yeah, and I just was, I find this, you know, in, in terms of, you know, making an act, active self-examination, this is a really powerful moment here, because you can imagine uh, after the chaos that went on in the Garden of Eden, 
um, the Lord calling out at even at even time, where are you? Yeah. That same voice calls out to us. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, Chapter 16, uh, which begins on 487. Uh, um, Again, emphasizing that Adam and us are of the same earth um, by one creator. There's that emphasis. If you jump to uh, the next page on 488, all of section two I've got underlined as a great quote. So do I. The whole yeah. section yeah. is good stuff. Um, I, I guess we got we're running late here, but I, you know, I can't help but um, this idea that the incarnation made visible the previously invisible image of God with which we were created. The importance of that. So he says, but. But then was this word revealed when the word of God was made man, likening himself to man and man to himself, that through the likeness to the Son which he hath, man may become dear to the Father. For in the former times it was said, indeed, that man was made in the image of God, but it was not revealed, for the word was yet invisible after whose image God, excuse me, man had been made. And for this cause, you see, he easily cast off also the resemblance of him. But when the word of God became flesh, he made both good. For he both truly revealed the image himself, having become that very thing which the image of him was. And he firmly established the resemblance by causing man to partake of his own complete likeness to the invisible Father through the visible Word. I keep thinking, you know, we think that the image of God is something extrinsic and perfect in us, and that's not how Irenaeus understood it. Um, as, as you read, you know, the image was not, the image of God wasn't able to be seen at the beginning, because the word had had yet to become flesh. Um, So you think about that, you know, Christ is the one that perfects the image in in every human person. There's right in the middle of that sentence, there's this, that paragraph, there's this sentence, and for this cause, you see, he easily cast off, cast off also the resemblance of him, which is, look at the word over there to the left, the Greek yeah. word. Do you read that? Homo, 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 likeness, homoisa, yeah. Well, you remember, was it two weeks ago or last week we were talking about about this a little bit too? Um, how that, yeah, how you know the soul, the human soul, um, if it if it turns downward and does yep. fleshly things, it it loses the image of of God, um, or it, it, it demolishes it in some way defaces it and um I, this is just really powerful i think it's 
it's helpful for us to understand how, um, you know, the soul has to be involved in, I mean, now the word is there, but the soul still has to turn toward the word, toward the spirit, in order for that image to um, be more, be, to be perfected in us. And I think Irenaeus, in this, in that one sentence I read, is getting with something which I know that many of us as pastors doing doing children's sermons and such have has used the reality is, is why did Jesus need to become a man? And part of it was so, so that we in our humanness, our sinfulness, could see God. Yeah. We, we need that. And he says here that before this happened, mankind could easily cast off our resemblance with him because we didn't connect with it, because we didn't have a visual reality. Well, now we have Jesus. We have Jesus. Um, and which reminds me of, oh, I don't have my Bible with me, but the beginning of 1 John. When, when How does John begin his first letter? That which we have seen, which we have touched. Oh, yes. Which we have seen. Yeah. This is what we are passing along to you. Why? So that we might have fellowship, the fellowship that we have with the Father, because we've seen, touched, and been with him. And then we can have our fellowship one with another because we want you, who didn't get a chance to see him, we saw him, and we want you to have the reality of that. That's, Marcus, that's a brilliant point you make there. And I was just imagining John teaching and Polycarp, who was teaching Irenaeus, that very point. <laughs> well, that, and that's, if you will, could be behind what he's saying here. Because before yeah. that happened... Before we had didn't have that gift from God, man could easily cast off the likeness of him. And that's why we have that all the disobedience in the Old Testament. Chapter uh, section three, and he manifested this also in the passion of Christ. And it's in this place that we have him starting the, to bring up this analogy of the tree. For doing away with that disobedience of man which at first was wrought at the tree, he became obedient unto death, even a death of the cross, healing the disobedience which had been wrought at the tree by the obedience, obedience which was also at the tree. Yeah, that's isn't that that's a very profound there too. Um, how the cross is is part of the image of God. Um, yeah. We see the image of God um, on the cross because of the obedience. Yeah, I was really moved by that. Again, once again, these might be images that we've become so accustomed to over the centuries, but at the time, uh, he's, these might have been some of the first times that these analogies were made that have become mm -hmm. a part of the tradition. And, of course, he goes on, you know, in that in that section— Three, um, to make the point that um, against the Gnostics, that if Jesus had been sent by another father, um, then he, there would be no point for him to make the offering on the cross because he doesn't owe anything to the, the God whose honor was um, violated because of the sins of the fathers. You know, That's a very good point there, too. 
Yeah, he just might have said, what do I have to do with that? I yeah, was created exactly. by somebody else. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, well, and some of those guys, you know, some of those Gnostics, basically those Docetists, anyway, they said essentially that. He just kind of went through the motions. <laughs> okay, um, mm-hmm. let's jump over to chapter 17. Um, and in section one, there's a good summary quote beginning, which is really a, a wonderful summary quote of all of salvation, if you will, because he says, and this is the creator who in love is our father, in power our father, in wisdom our maker and framer, whose commandment also disobeying, we have become enemies to him. And therefore, in the last times, the Lord restored us to friendship by his incarnation being made mediator of God and man, on the one hand appearing the Father in our behalf. Okay, on the one hand appeasing the Father in our behalf against whom we had sinned and assuaging our disobedience by his own obedience, and on the other hand granting unto us to be on terms of citizenship and dutifulness with our Maker. And, you know, I was reading through that and making a note that um, uh, that Irenaeus gives us um, a very rich view of the atonement. Sometimes um, when people kind of try to put it down on paper, they get it too formulaic and they say that the atonement, the atoning for our sins, where Christ offers himself to the Father for our sins, um, is something that developed in later Latin theology. And oh, we have a very, that's a very powerful image of it right here. Um, that was one of the points he made. The first one was to, um, uh, was, you know, that idea that we would, um, um, he would atone to the Father for our disobedience. And then, um, and then he makes us part of the family. Yeah, those, that's a really good all of this, hopefully by grace, is going to be turning some of those false teachers back home. That's right. Driving them to their knees, recognizing this is what the one and very creator of us has done for us because of his love for us. And this argument flows into uh, an argument about the Lord's Prayer, in which he is basically saying that in the Lord's Prayer, we ask the same Father— for forgiveness, who created us. Again, repeating what you said a bit, it's the same. Yeah. Uh, The one who created us in his image, that's the one that we have sinned against. That's the one that we asked for in the Our Father to forgive us. Um, In section two, um, it was the same Father and Creator who healed and forgave the paralytic. He, he, he's going on that analogy, again, the same. He's arguing for this, the sameness of this, again, with the background of those that want to say they're different folk, different creators, different fathers. And then if you jump to section three on page four. Oh, Marcus, can I just say please, before you jump? Please, yes. I, I had a note on that, too, on um, on page four. Um, was it 490? Okay. 
um, or for uh, yeah, 490. Oh, I guess it's there. I can't find it. But his point was that um, when he's talking about the miracle of the paralytic, um, the the his point was that the Isra the Israelites who were there, they knew when they were glorifying uh, God for the miracle, they knew whom to glorify. Um, you see that oh, it's on the, the top of it's on the, the bare, very bottom of 489 up to 490, yeah. That's right, yeah. Plain it is then that the Israelites were glorifying him who was proclaimed God by the law and the prophets, who is also the father of our Lord. Yeah, and then it goes on there. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, that just jumped out at me, too, that um, how he uses Scripture and the real experiences of Christ and his ministry to um, make this point. All right. Sorry. I'm seeing by the clock that I have only 10 minutes left before you have a duty to perform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So okay. let's finish this up in these 10 minutes. Okay. Um, if we jump to, as I said, section three on page 490, uh, there's a good quote there. Therefore, in forgiving sins, while he cured the man, he also manifestly declared himself who he is. So our Lord doing that miracle is, as we, I think all of us recognize in that, he's proclaiming himself as God and creator. And then at the bottom of the page, going to the top, we once again have that analogy of the tree. As by the tree we were made debtors to God, so by the tree we may receive remission of our debt. Again, I, the cross. Yeah. The cross. The emphasis of the cross. I hear. I remember and, that Baptist hymn. I think it's you know at the cross, at the cross. Yeah. You know the emphasis is on the cross of Christ. But he goes beyond that to another analogy, though the same thing in section four. And once again, here he is assuming that you've done your Sunday school work and you remember that story about the people whose the axe head had fallen in the water and gotten lost. And, and it's one of those goofy stories. And you, well, I remember as a kid hearing this story where Elijah takes the wood um, and he casts the wood in the water. And upon his doing this, the iron of the axe floated. And I remember thinking as a kid, how'd that work? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's what the scriptures say happened. And then we see Irenaeus pointing out the analogy there when he says, so the prophet by doing, by deed signified that by the dispensation of the wood, we were to receive again the solid wood of God, which by the wood we had neg neg negligently lost and were not in a way to find. And down a little bit below, he says, For since by wood we lost him, by wood again he was made manifest unto all, showing forth the length and the height and the depth and the breadth in himself. So again, the cross. And isn't it powerful how he, uh, how he um, uses that, well, that image of wood, and, and he can look at the types of the cross that are found in the Old Testament like that. I, yeah. you know, I've tried to imagine how this guy 
out there in Lyon um, is making these connections. And I think, you know, I can't help but see the Apostle John having a hand in this. The apostles taught him how to interpret these passages in the Old Testament. And where did John get it from? John got it from Jesus. Uh, yeah. You know, remember yeah. the, the two men walking along the Emmaus Road and saying, you, you, you know, we don't understand what happened. And then we have Jesus going through all the law and the prophets showing how they pointed to him. And so we, we see it coming out here. Um, there's, did you? Oh, did you yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to go ahead, and then I'll jump in. Yeah. I've just got that last quote on the bottom of page four, ninety-one, at the beginning of chapter eighteen. One is where I was going to end with, unless you had something you wanted to jump in first. That's what I wanted to talk about too. Oh, okay. Well, let me read oh, that fine okay. quote, and okay. then I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll pass the yeah. baton to you. At the bottom of page four ninety-one, the beginning of chapter one, he says, "Therefore, which order of things such." And so great he effected through means created not by another, but by himself, and not by such were as were made out of ignorance and decay, but by such as had their being from the wisdom and virtue of his father. Um did I go on? Because I want to go back a little bit. So, oh, sure. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. But I don't know. But if you want to make the point about that. Well, the same father created the order in things through his wisdom and virtue. Right. Is really what that thing's emphasizing right. yeah. there. Again, the same father. And that to me, that, that gets into the idea that the order that we see in the universe points to God. And that becomes that whole argument uh, from order for the reality of God and his wisdom and virtue. Uh, go ahead, Father. You had something you wanted to jump in about? Right. I want, at the very end of section uh, four, um, we stopped uh, yeah. We stopped at the semicolon himself. Yes. Okay, and then I'm going to continue. And as one of those who have gone before said, by the divine extension of his hands, gathering the two peoples together unto one God. Then I put the I put a quotation mark there because the editor of this text oh. <laughs> um, put it improperly and put it at the end there. So I two points I wanted to make here. Well, he finished it off there. For the hands indeed are two because there are two peoples dispersed unto the ends of the earth. But the head in the midst is one because God is one who is above all and through all and in us all. And the two points I wanted to make there, first of all, was um, uh, we wonder, you know, who is who is this certain man amongst, you know, our um, predecessors, one who has gone before us? Um, and and um, we've had that expression before. Uh, we've met up with it before. Um, one of those who have gone before us has said. So he, he's drawing on somebody here. And um, I can't help but think, you know, that that probably might be Papias. Oh. Um, um, but because Papias wrote a, a five-volume work on the sayings of Jesus. And so it's possible that that's what, um, mm -hmm. where he's drawing this from. But he's he's clearly 
citing a source from his time in Asia Minor, it seems to me there. And then um, just the image um, of, of the two hands on the cross um, extended. Oh, yeah. Um, I just wanted to share with you another, one of my favorite passages from St. Saint, Saint Athanasius on the Incarnation on this point. It's, and it just, again, it just, to me, it just shows that apostolic tradition creates, um, a, if you will, a kind of a culture in which some of these things that we see in the gospel um, are preached the same way throughout the church. So Christ on the cross, this is from On the Incarnation of Athanasius, section 25. It is only on the cross that a man dies with his hands spread out. And so it was fitting for the Lord to bear this also and to spread out his hands so that with the one he might draw the Jewish people and with the other he might draw the Gentile people and unite them both in himself. Mm -hmm. um, and so right there I can see from what this text in Irenaeus um, that this way of interpreting um, the, the visual picture we have in our mind of the Lord on the cross with his hands extended, um, this goes right back to the time of the apostles. And the church is now learning, has learned to preach it. It's kind of an unwritten tradition, if you will. Um, but, it, you know, but, but it it's appears. purely apostolic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mike Clock says, I've got 30 seconds before I have to let you go. So I want to end this session with the final quote on page 492 at the end of chapter 18.1, on which Irenaeus says this, and he's kind of summarizing up a whole bunch of things. And he says... Okay. And, and I'm just going to put on, I just put, need to put a little power on my computer, just as we need the Lord's power in our lives. So oh, Okay, <laughs> you got to plug it in. Okay, great. He says, wherefore, since these things are all impossible and admit of no proof. Now, what he means by these things, all those beliefs of the Gnostics, all those different permutations and things, that alone, excuse me, that alone is true which the church proclaims. That it was his own creation, subsisting by the power and skill and wisdom of God, which became the vehicle of him, which creation, while it is invisibly sustained by the Father, doth, on the other hand, visibly sustain his word. And this is the word. Now, we'll pick up from that statement next week because it leads us into a discussion of the Trinity, but it reminds me, Monsignor, that that's almost exactly what Leo was yeah. saying in his tome. That's right. It's it's remarkable, isn't it? How that yeah he connects like that. All right, Monsignor, would you close us with prayer, and then I'll let you go do your task. Of course, in honor of our um, of what we're celebrating, the feast of the Annunciation today, I'll use this prayer from um, from the Liturgy of the Hours. God, our Father, your word became man and was born of the Virgin Mary. May we become more like Jesus Christ, whom we acknowledge as our Redeemer, God and man. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, 
God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor, uh, for joining me today in sharing our thoughts on this book. And those of you for joining us in this episode of Deep in History, next week we'll pick up with Book 5, Chapter 18, Section 2. And look forward to seeing you then. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks.